screamed and he hollered and he fell on the floor and we almost gave up hope. As long as I live, I won't forget when Uncle Bill could do. As long as I live, I won't forget when Uncle Bill could do. This is hell. I think Uncle Bill was on heroin, not coke. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell. Last week, we started our discussion on the UN Climate Change Summit taking place in Glasgow by talking to Nick Buxton, who is co-author of the Transnational Institute report Global Climate Wall on the seven wealthiest nations, the seven that have contributed the most greenhouse-causing gases, spending far more on building walls to keep climate change-induced refugees out rather than on actually mitigating the worst aspects of climate change, thus making it so there will not be as many refugees or migration caused by extreme weather. Then yesterday we spoke with journalist Jerome Tubiana about his writing at The Baffler magazine, Land of Thirst, Climate Migration in Darfur, which describes one of the places where they are building walls to keep those who have been forced to leave their homes due to the effects of global warming out. It's a lesson in the effects of climate change many of us may be facing in the very near future, if not already. Today we are continuing that conversation by focusing on the causes of the climate change that is leading to walls being built and people forced to leave their homes. Despite many believing the problem is there are simply too many people, the real issue is we're consuming too much stuff. As the economy grows, greenhouse gases increase, more GDP, more climate change. So how do we stop growing the economy, especially when our economy depends upon growth for its success? Well, one thing we can do is quit focusing on maximizing profitability and productivity of everything, including ourselves. We can also recognize all that goes into maximizing that profitability and productivity, like technology, including our smartphones, the raw contents of which are produced through child slavery. In a few minutes, we'll learn about the real destruction that goes into our everyday lives and is causing climate change when we have the return of Ajay Singh Chowdhury, who wrote the Baffler magazine article, The Extractive Circuit and Exhausted Planet, The End of Growth. I know, two days in a row of articles from the Baffler magazine. We have not had two days in a row of people from the same publication or publishing house in years. Ajay is the executive director of the Brooklyn Institute for Social Resource Research research and a core faculty member specializing in social and political theory. You can find out more about the Brooklyn Institute at thebrooklyninstitute.com. You can follow the Brooklyn Institute on Twitter at BKLYN Institute. Ajay is currently working on a book of political theory for the Anthropocene. He has written for The Guardian, N Plus One, Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. Ajay was on our show back in June of 2020 to discuss another article he wrote for The Baffler. We're not in this together. There is no universal politics of climate change. You can follow Ajay on Twitter at materialist underscore Jew. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, which means producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. Alex, how's your week been going so far? That was dope. Just a coverall term for all sorts of drugs back in the olden times. I always thought it meant, I thought it meant heroin at one point, but then somebody else told me it was like tea, so it meant marijuana, but I don't know. 
I have no idea. I remember reading a glossary of those crazy terms at one point, but I can't remember anymore. What book had a glossary of all these drug I, terms from olden times? Uh, I think it was uh, Pimp by Iceberg. Uh, Iceberg Slim, yeah. Iceberg I read Slim, that. yeah. There's a uh, glossary of terms in the back of that book. I think that's where I got it from. Also, look up the word derby. Who knew that that's what derby meant? My week was going all right until I woke up this morning to discover that my home office was completely offline and I was unable to do my last-minute preparation for today's show at home, forcing me to come over here to the office and work in the office over here this morning. Luckily, we're on two different internet providers, so the internet provider over here was working. It's no big deal, but I just got my home office back in order last night after having to tear the whole place apart because of stupid cockroaches and exterminators. The problem is I haven't worked in my office here much since, uh, I don't know, March of last year. I've been using it to print scripts and store stuff, drop stuff off that's been sent to the show over the uh, last 20 months. So while I finally got my home office in order, my office here is trashed. At home, I can actually see my desk. Here, not so much, but more importantly than my internet being off at home, forcing me to work here this morning. Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? You're talking about derby meaning your stomach? No. Derby meaning Durban poison? Nope. Damn, I gotta keep looking for derbies. <laughs> uh, this week's question from hell is, in this house we believe what? In this house we believe what? I walk by a couple, I love complaining about these damn yard signs, uh, and they're per, there's like some permutations going on. I walk by one in like the slightly nicer area of my neighborhood, that the sign has so many words on it even though i love complaining about these things i've walked by it four times i've never actually read the entire thing <laughs> too long don't read is the nicer part of your neighborhood on the other side of dodge yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can tell yes i can tell the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want you can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff assesses the damage caused by liberalism's success in the marketplace of ideas. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Ajay. It's Tuesday, so we're reading emails that you've sent to chuck at thisishell.com with your guest and topic suggestions and whatever else you want to tell us about the show remember if we have your guest or topic suggestion on the show we'll thank you on air during the interview with your guest or on your topic suggestion grace emailed us saying hey chuck i love the show and have been listening religiously since the start of the pandemic in the spring of last year and have been working my way through the archives since then i can't thank you enough for the hours of education i've gotten from this is hell and for all the people i've started following after hearing them on the show as someone like your sister with a background in zoology i have a bias towards interviews that involve the natural world particularly when it comes to animals or ecology and would love to hear more of them i'd like to suggest jan dukovich and spencer roberts as guest speakers about their recent article in wired on the Wal walton foundation family uh, walton family foundation funded uh, 
Blue washing of the seafood industry and scientific literature. Thank you and best wishes, Grace. The article Grace suggests is titled, Whitewashing Blue Food Won't Make the World More Green. The authors suggest, or they write, that marine wildlife is in a state of global emergency. 90% of fish populations are at or below half their historical levels. And more fish species appear on the International Union for Conservation of Nature's Red List of Threatened Species than any other class of animals. Since 1970... Alone, global shark and ray populations have declined by more than 70%. The primary driver of this aquatic extinction crisis is not climate change or plastic pollution, but fishing. And conservation biologists around the world have warned that addressing this crisis requires overhauling traditional notions of fisheries management and implementing significant restrictions on catch limits. Recently, however, calls have emerged not for less fishing, but more under the banner of a new term encompassing all seafood and Aquaculture products, blue food, it's called. But this blue food narrative relies on generalizations and omissions that obscure the facts about the impacts of seafood, just as harmful industries such as big oil and big livestock have promoted superficial production tweaks and embraced the language of sustainability. So too has the seafood industry. While the Blue Food Alliance boasts the membership of sustainability, nonprofits like EAT, E-A-T, it also includes seafood titans like the Walton Family Foundation. As countless unsustainable industries claim to go green, public messaging on blue food bears all the hallmarks of a branding pivot. Call it a blue wash. So while world leaders meet to try to figure out how to best feed the world, and now as they meet to figure out how to fight climate change, the Walton family, who have made their massive fortunes off Walmart, are trying to mislead consumers into unsustainable practices that are causing mass extinction. Which is exactly what you should expect from the Walton family. Whatever it takes to make more money. And damn the costs to the planet, to the people, to the future. Which is something to keep in mind right before the next time you go shopping at Walmart. We'll have more of your emails following our conversation with the J on climate change and capitalism. And we got a music suggestion for opening music by somebody who is famous... Not for their musical talents, and not very talented at aiming a gun either. Coming up, the real cause of climate change that likely will not be a big part of the conversation at the UN Climate Change Summit in Glasgow. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, In this house we believe what? In this house we believe what? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail gets whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And again, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Also, like I was saying, we'll be sharing more of your emails in a moment, too, following our, our conversation with Ajay. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing, this is hell under neoliberalism. Our profitability and productivity is maximized, and seemingly so is our level of depression, desperation, and sheer exhaustion. It's as if we are a simple resource, like any other, to be used up all in the name of the bottom line, and then to be disposed of once we no longer can produce any more value to be profited from by someone else who makes far more off our labor than we do. In the meantime, that labor produces all sorts of what are called externalities that can range from brutal violence to the environmental destruction of our planet. 
here to help us have a better understanding of those interconnections of the current state of capitalism. Ajay Singh Chowdhury wrote the Baffler magazine article, The Extractive Circuit, An Exhausted Planet at the End of Growth. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Ajay. Ah. Uh, uh, it's great to be back, Chuck. It, I had such a great conversation with you back in uh, late uh, in June of last year when we were talking about your article from the Baffler, We're Not in This Together. There is no universal politics of climate change. Listeners should go back and listen to that interview. Just search on Ajay's name at our website, thisishell.com, but also go back and check out his that writing at the Baffler. You start by writing the machinery. The actual form and function of 21st century capitalism is an extractive circuit, which quite literally crisscrosses the world. Its global value chains stretch through physical infrastructure and frictionless financial flows at the speed allowed by fossil fuels, telecommunications, and geophysical, technological, psychosocial, and bodily limits and optimizations. If 21st century, because you point out that this leads to feelings of exhaustion, depression, desperation, fatigue, exasperation, it courses through its wirings, neurons, biochemicals, and sinews. If 21st century capitalism is so brutal, leaving us exhausted, depressed, desperate, fatigued, and exasperated, why does the global public seemingly tolerate it? Why doesn't 21st century capitalism face constant derision and threats to its existence if it's so bad for us? Uh, that's a that's a big opening question. Uh, so, I mean, there's a couple things to unpack there. I mean, one is that... Uh, I actually think that, you know, why is it tolerated uh, is, is, is an interesting frame because, in fact, it isn't in, in many ways. I think uh, if you look across the world, uh, you see it both in terms of like explicit climate politics, but just also in sort of general um you know, uh, I think I'm, in the piece I call them legitimation crises following, you know, Habermas and Nancy Fraser's sort of work on on on, on that. Um, but if you follow sort of like political and social upheaval, you actually see that there's a tremendous amount of uh, of of yeah of this kind of exasperation uh, with the system as as, as it is. Um, sadly, you know the you know. All of this, the, the work that I'm currently doing, right, is 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 to sort of do a political theory of climate change, um, and sadly, I, I don't think there has been, you know, full success, although there's the isolated cases um, where the sort of picture has been successfully drawn by, let's call it, the broadly writ left, um, and there are very large movements. Uh, you know, peasant movements, for example, in parts of the global south, um, very large, large numbers of people, large numbers of organizations, many, many different countries. Um, and of course, there are mo movements closer to home for those who are listening probably here in the United States, uh, you know, uh, smaller groups like uh, Sun like Sunrise, um, DSA, and the various other organizations that have really been, especially the DSA um, eco-socialists, uh, who have really been focusing so hard on these issues. Um, but overall, we have yet to still bring all these sort of different facets together, I think. Uh, and in many ways, the piece that uh, you invited me on to uh, speak about today, right, is the sort of foundation, right? It's the concrete foundation of which uh, to start building the case um, for why so many different struggles in this moment actually do sort of converge uh, uh, around these, you know, related issues and specifically around this like matrix. I, I use the word socioecology in there quite a lot. This sort of socioecological matrix um, that is the, sort of this moment in time. 
And you write that the ex- extractive circuit is the socio-ecological portrait of capitalism historically and its transformation to maintain profitability in the face of imminent headwinds like the long economic downturn and ecological limits themselves. Just as Marx once invited us to look behind the factory door, above which was inscribed no admittance except on business, to understand the way in which a nascent industrial capitalism was creating value, we need to unbox the extractive circuit, catalog its parts, and pry past a few bezels if we want to see actually existing capitalism today. But these extractive circuits are so thoroughly intertwined. How difficult is it to pry them apart and see those circuits of capital? Does that intertwining make them less visible and detectable? Uh, so, yeah, uh, I think, it, I mean, it's look, it's difficult. I mean, it was already difficult uh, enough in, you know, the mid 19th century when Marx first wrote those those lines right about capital. Um, and it's, I would say, even more so today, uh, given that form and function. I mean, there's two questions I think that are related in your question, if I can be so bold, which is one is about visibility and the other is about the sort of difficulty of prying apart um, and not just for explanation, right? But like like literally prying apart, like, like we're gonna have to do something about this. Because uh, on the one hand, yes, uh, uh, Many of the sort of, especially some of the things I talk about in there, legal structures, um, international institutions, uh, rhetoric, um, all the sort of, a lot of the classics, right? Uh, 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 Pervasive media uh, narratives, you know, ideological stuff, things that people I think talk about quite a lot, of course, make this very obscure. And it is even more obscure than, you know, the classic sort of logic of like commodity fetishism as, as, as Marx described and many, 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 many later thinkers expanded over the course of the late 19th and 20th centuries and, and to this day. Um, on the other hand, it actually, like, there is actually a big problem here. And, and uh, it may have not been, you know, I, I really do hope people get a chance to, to read this piece. And in fact, as, as you suggested, uh, this, um, read the former, <clears throat> which is in fact, it's weird that this came out second because this uh, the previous piece sort of um, relies on on this framework and in fact this is as I said the sort of foundation for what I consider a sort of general political theory uh, of climate change or a political theory for the Anthropocene um, and part of that uh, uh, difficulty and part of that work um, is right there in the first line because. On the one hand, there's really, uh, and I feel this, I think a lot of people feel this, um, uh, on, the, on the left, particularly on the sort of Marxist, eco-Marxist left, you want to sort of pat yourself on the back and be like, hey, totally got that one right. Um, uh, particularly when you look back at right, you know, some of the early arguments and the arguments that have been developed over the course of three or four phases of, of eco-socialism, eco-feminism, and so on and so forth, um, that, you know, oh, look, uh, Capitalism is going to, you know, it, it exploits workers. It will cast them out. It exploits, you know, the worker and the soil. Marx says this many, 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 many times. So there's a, a tendency to want to be like, yeah, we totally got it right. Look, we got it right. I feel like there was a very similar um, moment several years ago when um, the first that first Piketty volume came out, and it was like, well, this is under theorized, yada yada. But basically, this is the empirical case showing that the theoretical case is is right. Uh, The problem, though, uh, and this is maybe more around the edges of the piece, is that it's but it's introduced right there up front is 
this is actually a huge political problem uh, and uh, uh, on multiple levels uh, for the left. One, um, you can't you can't just say you know capitalism is the problem, so we're gonna we're gonna dump it, right? Um, you know, there's a uh, Andreas Mom has a great line in his uh, first book, uh, Fossil Capital, where he's like, you know, you can't no solution revolution this. You know, historically, it's you know, social revolution seems to be a pretty difficult thing to achieve, and doing it, you know, in the necessary timeframes for getting. Um, uh, climate uh, mitigation and adaptation into gear uh, doesn't really seem plausible. Um, and I would add to that, um, and there's a lot more going on in here than that. We can talk about that, I'm sure. Um, but I would add on to that, that there is also an assumption amongst, I think a lot of particularly, you know, global, I'm trying to pick on people, but particularly amongst some global North um um, socialists that like is a very straight reading sort of from, let's say the tradition of like Kautsky and others, uh, Bernstein, Kautsky, you know, the German social Democrats of just being like, oh, we're just going to like sort of pick up all the wonderful things that capitalism made. And then we're just going to like, you know, democratically control them. And, you know, then it'll be socialist and it'll be better. But actually like we have long since passed the point where like, um, some, you know, uh, uh, where cap, they're sort of, what we, I'm trying not to use the buzzwords, right? Where like capitalist innovation serves the needs of, you know, it, it's somehow expanding, you know, useful productive capacity for, for the wants, needs, and desires of, of, of most people. And in fact, the, the, what we are receiving both in the sort of, these sort of, not just in these, uh, structures of, you know, relations between, say, technology and law or, you know, economics and structures of firms, but like the stuff that we would want to like pick up, right? Um, appropriate, the, expropriate the expropriators, right? Um, it doesn't, it's not, it's completely incompatible with mass human flourishing. So we're really stuck between two very, very, very difficult uh, rocks, two very difficult rocks and hard places, a rock and a hard place, however people wanna use that phrase, right? Um, where we sort of have to change these things very quickly. It might not mean the complete overturning of everything that I think many Marxists and many socialists imagine it to be the end of capital, but it would also, uh, be so different from today that, uh, you know, colloquially we could call it maybe socialism, even if it had such things as, as you know, conspicuous things that we would normally associate with capitalism. Um, but yes, we cannot just pick up this machine and say, let's, I mean, I'm actually quoting someone now. I won't, I won't sort of like do the like mean, like name dropping thing and sit and, you know, uh, who's like, oh, we'll just sort of pick up the machine and we should say the machine should go, the machine should go faster, the machine should go great. No, the machine's totally fucking broken. And the machine actually is not producing, you know, to use this, uh, I hate to keep using this old Marxist language of people, forgive me. It's not really producing these values, even on the level of, of desire. It is literally, it is producing pervasive, as I say in there, you know, exhaustion, this sort of, again, I call it a panoply of ethics, I think, um, of exhaustion. And to me, that this sort of crosses the boundary. I talk a lot about mental health in the piece, but it also, it, uh, we, we need to be thinking about this in terms of 
of course, also in terms of other uh, physiological um, crises, um, not just uh, things about pharmacology and things like that, but also like social crises, political crises, et cetera, et cetera, across the world and be like, oh, wait a minute. Um, capitalism and not just in its sort of like capitalist niche um, is, is sort of driving these things. Uh, a narrative, which I, you know, again, I point out there, and this is all adapted from longer work, uh, academic work, and also the book manuscript. Um, so uh, observe, uh, sort of causal relations that many climate scientists are now you know, they were they were once very reticent, I would say, um, to talk about these sort of uh, these sort of issues. But many climate scientists are now more and more comfortable, and I do talk about this in the piece, with saying, "Yeah, no, this is a principle. This is a or the principal driver." And so, oh God, I got myself off the off the track. No, so we we sort of have the other side of this, which is uh, we're not going to have revolution immediately. Um, but we also can't, you know, pick up these pieces. We basically need to like take a lot of this stuff apart, um, and, uh, sort of to push back against, um, a very unexpected, uh, conjuncture in history that we are at in this moment, um, which really is off the map of what a lot of previous sort of political thought was imagining. And you asked that we consider the Philippines over the past several decades. The <laughs> Filipino economy has become increasingly dependent on the export of low cost labor, largely along gendered lines in the form of care workers to North America and Europe, mostly women and extremely low cost manual laborers to the Gulf states, mostly men. Remittances now make up 10 percent or more of the annual GDP of the Philippines. How new is that process of remittances making up so much of the Philippines GDP? Is this a relatively new global phenomenon driven by climate change? That's really interesting. Um, you know, this is something that takes off over the course of the 20th century. Um, and one of the things that I uh, talk about in that piece and at more length in other writings um, is when we're talking about, you know, what some climate scientists have dubbed the great acceleration. Um, we're not just talking about the last four decades, although there are definite things I, I wanna talk about in terms of the last four decades, uh, but we are really talking about processes that began in certainly in the, even as far, you know, way, way, way back, you know, before industrial capitalism, certainly at industrial capitalism, and then exploding, exploding. You can just see this on, on simple um, in sort of empirical measures and, and charts, um, exploding starting in the mid 20th century, right? And so if you think about a phenomenon like remittances in a place like the Philippines, uh, yeah, it starts back then, um, principally, um, and then it gets more and more and more and more as we move into the into the into the current times. You know, sometimes some years ebb, some years flow. But yes, it becomes a, a more an an ever greater sort of uh, foundation of the economy. And it's such a fa fascinating, uh, or a, you know, whatever you want to call it, the, the Filipino economy. Uh, and it's such a fascinating microcosm. That's why I like to start with it because. Really, in that little example, you can see so many things going on. Um, and actually, the Philippines is not the most, I think, dependent on remittances in the world. But the Philippines is a really interesting sort of little case to start with um, because um, you actually have 
um, you can actually see the ways in which, and I, I only talk about aquaculture in there. It's funny, you had an aquaculture bit right up front. Um, so I talk about aquaculture in there, right? Fisheries being sort of decimated and things by climate change. Um, if one really digs into that story, you actually find that there's quite a lot of actually just standard agriculture that's also displaced. Um, this is also extremely good uh, for you know the, pro the bottom line. Uh, you get more and more land that's incorporated into, you know, into global capital, yada, yada, yada. Um, so you can actually see the ways in which even the sort of direct effects of climate change help to drive this economic, uh, this useful economic um, phenomenon uh, that, you know, is useful, right? It creates this sort of this supply of cheap labor. Um, it weakens uh, the position uh, of, 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 of potential, you know, uh, social and political um, action uh, amongst, amongst many people. Um, and you can also see the ways in which the Philippines is really interesting. I don't talk about this in the piece, but you can also see the ways in which something like um, you know, the, uh, the current government in, in the Philippines, you know, it's a very, very far right uh, government um, sort of uh, takes power and is, and is, you know, pretty brutal uh, and is also, you know, the global North uh, sort of imperial powers more than happy to that that is the case. Um, so you get a little bit of a, of a geopolitics in there. And part of the thing that allows that um, right wing power to take uh, uh, sort of that right-wing movement to sort of take power so well, again, is, is the opportunities provided um, through the kind of social exhaustion and ecological exhaustion and economic exhaustion that I'm talking about in this piece. Um, so it really is like an, uh, often, you know, there's, there's a, you know, I hate to sound you use this kind of language all the time, but whatever. There is, in fact, right, a, a dialectical relationship here, um, right, where, of course, uh, capitalism is, a, is the principal driver. Um, but I think the part that people miss, and this is, was maybe more uh, visible in the We're Not In This Together article that you mentioned up front, is, in fact, that there are levels and degrees of climate degradation. Uh, of 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 what are almost universally rhetorically agreed upon. Talk about COP twenty six, right? Everyone says, "Oh, we don't want." I mean, some. I mean, I think I think many countries are suddenly saying one point five is off the table. It doesn't have to be, but you know, the you know that's what a lot of uh, uh, wealthy countries want to say, or I should say, wealthy uh, elites in wealthy countries. Um, but you know you very commonly run into discourses saying, yeah, 2.53, maybe even four, totally all right. Uh, and you suddenly realize that uh, there is not only uh, tremendous costs to capital for actual climate uh, adaptation and mitigation, but, act, but again, benefits to capital from uh, climate degradation and socio-ecological -eco exhaustion. So you also point out that as much as 83% of the Saudi Arabian workforce is migrant, according to the IMF, yet for all its repressiveness through arms of direct coercion, coercion like its notorious mor morality police, Saudi Arabia is a remarkably weak state. So what do you mean by Saudi Arabia being a weak state? And is it a weak state because it depends on migrant labor? 
Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, no, I was I was not uh, actually saying it's it's weak because it depends on, on migrant labor. Uh, it's funny because when we were going through this and adapting it from the longer versions that I've had, I've written for academic. Uh, publications and, and for my manuscript that's in process sort of pulled out a lot of the details about about Saudi because because it's like so deep to get into. Um, but no, what you have in a situation like like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states more broadly, you know, Saudi is just kind of the most famous. So threw it in there. Um, right. I mean, Saudi is a no, but Saudi is a particularly good case, I should say. Right. Um, the Modern kingdom of Saudi Arabia is created, um, you know, through a partnership between the House of Saud, uh, uh, the British government, uh, the British Empire, and uh, 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 so strategic alliances with Salafis. And this probably sounds, uh, you know, Wahhabis in particular, right? Uh, this all probably sounds very like far away from you know, climate change and politics of climate change and, you know, in, you know, industrial forms of whatever, all this kind of techno forms of technology that, you know, we have. Um, but actually part of the point I'm trying to make here, and this is, uh, is a, a Tim Mitchell wrote a wonderful book called Carbon Democracy, which talked about this particular, I think, aspect, but slightly differently than the way I do it, um, is like actually the shape and function of a state like that um, is another thing that, you know, has been finely tuned to the needs of, you know, keeping profitability up, um, which is, as I say in the piece, is hard work, right? Profits, like on paper, especially, especially financial profits look like, like just like the sky's the limit. It's totally crazy. We just hit, I think, another Dow record this past week, uh, all time. Um, so on paper, this looks great. But when you start counting the material, uh, the underlying materials going into this, you realize actually, oh shit, this is really hard to keep up. Um, and when you talk about, uh, when you think about a case like Saudi, right, it's not just this historical foundation. Uh, what you get um, these periodic waves. Saudi note, like the, the Saudi government, the royal family, which is, by the way, like a like hundred thousand people, if I recall correctly. People, I think there's like a lot of things that are in, that are like interesting facts within that case. Um, but they're well aware that they need to sort of shift um, their internal politics and uh, diversify, let's say, their portfolio beyond simply you know, oil exports. And that's not necessarily for climate reasons. They just know that they sort of can't depend on that forever. Um, so what do they do? I mean, this is a classic thing that like very boring mainstream political science uh, talks about, right? They try to switch from, you know, a rent model, right? Where they're just scooping up a little bit of, you know, they get a certain percentage of the oil profits that they share. Again, I think uh, Aramco, I forget who Aramco partners with right now. I wanted to say uh, BP, but I'm not sure. But anyway, they get s some of the, uh, you know, profits from Aramco um, and, Right. And that's basically where the state's funding comes from, as opposed to, you know, you know, again, very boring things like taxation. Um, Saudi has tried the Saudi Arabian government many times over the past, you know, several, many decades. And, this, and there's some interesting stuff back towards the beginning of, of the country as well, just sort of institute things like income taxes, wealth taxes, things like that. Um, and people really, really resist and it's failed every single time. And I think 
you know, there's this sort of image of the like, there's a classic Orientalist image, right? Of the Oriental despot. Um, but actually, right, um, even the sort of most uh, bloodthirsty uh, Saudi uh, leaders um, have been unable, uh, and I say bloodthirsty here, understanding that there's no more bloodthirsty leaders than our own here in the United States, but, you know, put that to the side. Um, but, you know, even the most ruthless uh, local leaders there have actually not been able to push through reforms like this. And um, largely a lot of the sort of placation of actual uh, uh, local citizens and, and, uh, and others in the, in, in the region just comes through basically uh, payoffs from that uh, from that sort of oil wealth that has actually dwindling over, uh, over the years. And one of the things that this sort of imported labor force allows them to do um, is to um, sort of prop up this sort of deal, basically, right? This sort of transactional deal between the local population and a government that isn't like universally beloved, right? So it sort of has the pillar of this sort of like, um, yeah, what, I don't know what you want to call it, sort of like uh, economic welfareism, let's call it. Um, it has this pillar of sort of semi-religious -relig uh, semi-legitimacy. Um, and it does have that pillar of like brutal, you know, internal coercion, but not internal coercion so powerful that they can get like people to pay taxes or, you know, uh, take all kinds of, of jobs. So this kind of workforce helps Saudi be more stable. And Saudi also then in turn helps the uh, flow of oil be more stable. Now, they're not the only player in town, but again, it's a nice microcosm, just like the Philippines was. And you also point out that uh, you asked to imagine a global North worker across the globe, likely middle class, probably white, but not necessarily slow. So place her in California, an increasingly unsuitable geography for mass human habitation. Say she's white collar, perhaps an office assistant or coder. Today, our imaginary Californian works longer hours in a productively optimized labor process, still for a lower wage than a male counterpart, even as part of her second shift is now itself displaced onto migrant labor, including everything from general health care to at-home care and domestic work to independent contract labor for household maintenance, which can range from food preparation and delivery to in concentrated urban centers, laundry, and far beyond. The extractive circuit produces prodigious amounts of such disposable people. What impact does that disposability of workers, both skilled and unskilled, have on those workers potentially organizing a labor movement? Does greater yeah. dependence on migrant labor have any impact on that labor's ability or power to organize? Oh, thank you so much for this. Um, this is a great question. Um, there's like, again, sort of two parts. So one part is about workers and one part is about non-workers. Um, like part of the point of, of bringing those things into sort of uh, conversation is both sort of empirical. Um, right, like there is a literal connection, right? Uh, there, a material connection uh, between these different kinds of labor and what they facilitate. Um, and part of this is actually to show, right? That this is pretty bad for a lot more. The the uh, even at the level, if we're just focusing, uh, sort of uh, zeroing in and sort of focusing on labor, um, actually a lot of boundaries that once separated. Uh, let's say, uh, largely speaking, global south, global north um, labor, you know, are decreasing. 
Uh, and in fact, um, I say this a lot. I think I say this in this piece and I just say this a lot. Um, the concrete foundations today for like international solidarity, um, uh, sort of the, the, and not even in just some kind of like, like it is good, right? A sort of moral case, but like in a sort of basic way, like the base numbers um, is better today and the incentive structures and all that is better today than it probably has been at any point in the, in frankly, the past several hundred years. Um, in fact, maybe of all time. And I think that's very important to take uh, to put together. So in fact, I, I actually think part of the, what I hope is that part of this argument um, in fact is, showing or is, is helping to show how migrant labor and seemingly right some of the winners from this uh story right um not the like you know uh as i talk about in the other piece not the rex tillersons of the world you know but like someone doing okay uh global standards doing real good right um but actually quite miserable <laughs> um and you know I don't, i'm not trying to do like uh sort of like a misery contest or something like this but actually having a lot more in common um with, with like someone like this sort of imaginary right this imaginary californian uh coder and this imaginary uh filipino you know let's say nurse or imaginary filipino caregiver or um, whatever it is um actually have a lot more in common um, than, you know, one, what one might think uh, through a lot of uh, traditional frameworks. Uh, and this is highly non-determinate, right? Um, so there are other folks uh, in, in, you know, workers and others uh, in the global north in particular, and most of the global south, many places, um, who are still bound to, you know, the, you know, you know, in many ways, you know, to the success of their respective firm or their respective sector. Um, and so this requires, again, a, 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 a challenge, but also an opportunity uh, for the left politically, because there are new possibilities of alliances, strategic alliances, and actually new forms of, frankly, I'll just say that sort of mass subjects and mass subjectivity that are possible, you know, across these lines that might seem otherwise um, you know, intractable, um, uh, but without obliterating them. Um, and on the other hand, right, what's also sort of in, I think, important for the labor side of the story is how many people are not in the labor side of the story. Huge, huge masses of people. Um, I cite in this piece, although not, you know, it's like a link or something, um, and this is super academic of me. I can't remember the full name. I just remember that it's Nielsen 2011. But an uh, uh, interesting article um, reviewing and sort of uh, compiling all the data on global labor um, participation rates and things of that nature. And actually finding that, uh, you know, and this isn't that surprising for people who have been paying attention to this story for a long time. Um, majorities across the world, less so in the global north, but more so in, uh, and more so in the global south, but still majorities, um, including if you cut out, right, everyone under, you know, let's say 18 or 16 or whatever it is, right? So we're talking about working adults. Um, we are finding ever increasing numbers of people thrown into, you know, the, uh, the category of sort of uh, relative surplus populations. And also just straight up to use uh, Ruth Gilmore's uh, formulation, just social abandonment. Um, and that's across the board. So there's actually, a, I mean, this story that I tell here that, it, you know, I sort of use this nice little like microcosm. Um, 
focus is on labor, but one of the points I try to make, you know, later in the piece and then in my broader work is that actually, right, um, refugees, for example, I'll use refugees as, as my one little key example here, um, right, often fall out of the picture. Like, what is, re- what are, re- are they going to be this? Are they going to be that? What class position are they? What social position? Um, how are we going to, you know, uh, but A, there actually have been successful ways of monetizing climate refugees, economic refugees, political refugees. And again, I think these things are all deeply connected. Um, the two examples I'll give is uh, people have made a fair amount of money from data mining refugees, believe it or not. Uh, and then people have made a fair amount of money, of course, of incorporating some refugees into um into informal labor markets. And then they're often also used as a kind of, and I think you even mentioned this, or maybe one of your previous guests uh, earlier episodes did, um, they're also used as sort of geopolitical chips, right? Um, I don't think I talk about it in here per se, but like, if you think about the, the interactions over the past 10 years or so between Turkey and the EU, uh, you actually see this kind of like interesting, you know, uh, if, uh, you know, Turkey is still like in a geopolitical like hierarchy, right, subordinate to a place like, let's say, Germany. Um, but there is this bargaining chip of like, we'll release the, the refugees. Uh, and th- this becomes like almost like a, a, a leverage uh, for, for our country. So you start to see also all the ways in which non-workers are part of these extractive circles. There's a refugee I talk about here. I talk about surrounding communities and extractive zones um, or sacrifice zones, for example. And, you know, again, another sort of challenge for the left, if it's trying to play by a very old playbook, um, is to realize that, you know, one of our other sort of big theses that sort of hasn't played out is that everyone's going to become this kind of proletarianized worker. Um, And only half that story ends up being true. Like, yes, more and more people globally are dependent uh, in one way or another on the market for access to basic, you know, we haven't always used that phrase, wants, needs, and desires. Uh, But uh, more and more people are actually thrown out, not only of the formal labor market, but of the sort of reproduction of capital tote court. Uh, and this was not expected. And our political theory of climate change, so these things, of course, are being driven by, again, socioecology, whatever you want to call it, um, of of climate change that are driven by the economics of, you know, what I call here, right, the 21st century form of capitalism, the extractor circuit. Um, So they're being uh, driven by these factors. Um, But then on the flip side, uh, politically for the left, uh, we need to be thinking quite a bit about how folks like um, the refugee, like surrounding communities who aren't necessarily, or uh, uh, people experiencing social abandonment, uh, who aren't part of the that sort of classic labor exploitation model are actually quintus are a huge numbers of people uh and b um ex, uh, a vital com- uh, part of whatever mass subject we can imagine and we do need a mass subject um to push to, to uh, build the power necessary to uh, push through what real climate mitigation and adaptation would require You write that emissions, resource intensivity, and other climate measures are concentrated where endpoint consumption is greatest, as many climate scientists now openly state, among the world's wealthiest. In the global top wealth and income deciles, 
population growth is lowest or even negative. And as the rate of population growth is curbing globally, climate change continues its exponential pace. It's not people causing climate change. It's not overpopulation. It's overproduction. It's productivity. To you, what explains so much concern then about overpopulation and seemingly not as much about overproduction? Uh, It's a great, I mean, for one thing, I think it's hard to wrap our heads around overproduction, right? When there is uh, deprivation. Um, It's when you really dig into those charts and you're like, oh, where's the money going to? Where's the actual material stuff going to? How, what's it doing? When you suddenly realize um, just how, just how starkly terrible. Um, I mean, I hate to, to sound like a boring economist now and not like doing something more dynamic, but the distributional outcomes, let's just say, are are comical. Um, and yeah, uh, those like, I think Ox, Oxfam has been putting together a lot of these reports and many ecological economics, uh, economists working with um, uh, natural scientists, you know, all kinds of fields um, have been putting together these sort of studies. Um, yeah, showing that, you know, these sort of end use consumptions uh, are really the sort of biggest game in town. Uh, but again, I think because the distributional outcomes are so poor, it's a hard to wrap our heads around the idea that there is, there actually is plenty of production in the world. Uh, that in fact there is overproduction. Uh, as you know, again, this is an old, boring concept from Marx. Um, there's more than enough uh, uh, stuff to go around. Uh, some things need to be built. Of course, I'm not sort of arguing. I'm not like, I'm not a romantic. As you probably noticed, that's why I avoid a lot of like romantic and, and other language in here. Um, but at the same time, I, uh, the, uh, the other case, A is pushed quite frequently and quite, um, I would say sometimes disingenuously in a sort of a greenwashing way of being like, ah, the real problem is all these Chinese and all these Indians who are going to be, you know, moving up the, you know, global socioeconomic ladder and yada, yada, yada. Um, right. Oh, population boom in, in Africa. Yeah. yeah. Um, this sort of is a, a classic it, it's, uh, it's intuitive and incorrect, right? So A, it's pushed by a lot of, you know, some people who I know for a fact are absolutely, they know that they're lying. Um, it's pushed by people I think who mean well. I think like, I think Jade Goodall got a, at Davos made a version of this argument re- quite recently. Uh, I think Bill Gates, uh, I think, I don't know if, I don't know how to judge Bill Gates, but uh, I believe uh, this is one of his favorite arguments, the population thing. But I also think in general, like it seems like intuitive in like a really casual way if you are like bathed in the ideology, right? Which is all pervasive and ever more sort of forceful um, of sort of, yeah, capitalism, of, of, of contemporary capitalism, whatever you want to call it. Um, that like, oh, right. If more people are getting more stuff, that's going to drive everything up. And again, if you drill down to those numbers, you realize, oh man, actually a lot of this is just to keep, um, you know, wealth accruing to an ever smaller number of people. Uh, well, not small, ever smaller percentage, I, sh- I should say. It's not a smaller number. Um, uh, and uh, the levels of, of material resource consumption, both to uh, maintain a sort of wealthy life, but also uh, to uh, just that goes directly into wealthy life. I mean, one of the most uh, uh, common examples is like people who take like 
10 flights a year or three or more flights a year, which is like such a tiny percentage of global population is like an even tiny percentage of, of population in developed countries. Again, um, that the amount of material resources that goes into supporting that is in fact actually significant. Uh, I think it was, uh, I want to say Kevin Anderson at Tyndall in Britain. Uh, I forget what his field specialization is. He's a climate scientist. I forget which field specialization, but it was like, if we could just, you know, talk about uh, um, just emissions, right? Forget all the other resources I talk about in this, this piece, but like just talking emissions, right? Getting, you know, and just Europe, right? If we could just get European standards of, of living of the top 1%, you know, to the like top, you know, 10 of Europe, right? So it's like, you ever been to Portugal? It's not so bad, right? So it's like, if you could just sort of spread that around a little bit, that's like a 30% emissions reduction. And you really start understanding uh, how much is buried in some of the day-to-day um, ways in which climate is talked about, especially in the mainstream media. Um, the final example I'll give is you, you often see these charts that are like, oh, right, like look at all these emissions coming from China, yada, yada, yada this kind of, especially China. Um, and people will say, well, it's China's problem. I think Barack Obama uh, yesterday at COP26 said, oh, it's China's problem. It's Russia's problem. They're fucking assholes. And uh, the Russians are kind of assholes. But the Chinese actually are being uh, very proactive. Uh, I would like to see much more, but very proactive on climate issues. Uh, China, uh, and it is it was definitely, it was extremely the case like 10 years ago and still largely the case today that like a large percentage of those Chinese emissions are in fact German emissions. And I have to say that there are people on both the right, the center and the left who like push this false narrative forward uh, for various sort of dogmatic reasons. Um, where you don't want, you only ever meant, uh, want to address, uh, people will only address climate costs, emissions, things like that at the point of production, forgetting that, right? Again, I use the cell phone in the piece as the example, right? If I produce a cell phone in Shenzhen, um, but it's actually going to, you know, Frankfurt, or it's actually going to Kyoto, or it's actually going to Seattle, right? Um, that number, that emission, like if we're using this funny geopolitical uh, sort of tabulation, is really on, you know, Germany, Japan, the U.S. Uh, and I will just underline again that it's it, that these are all a little bit fuzzy because, of course, uh, emissions don't really know any boundaries. Uh, and to be fair, capital doesn't really know any boundaries either. You mentioned how uh, financial you write financialized supply chains are structured to allow firms to ignore or skirt local, national, international, legal, or even physical attempts to restrict the flow of extraction. They facilitate the shift of risk to the actor, whether at will contractor, off the books migrant employee, or indigenous community in a resource rich area, structurally least able to absorb it. So. Are financialized supply chains then out of our control and without oversight? And if that is the case, how is the ungovernability of global value chains a threat to democracy? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, thank you so much. Uh, so, I mean, even in the something I try to do in a lot of my work is bring in a lot of perspectives of people. And I think climate is particularly good at this because it is this case study where some of these conclusions are unavoidable. Um, 
I try to bring a lot of people who aren't coming from like starting from like, like Marxist premises or starting from a left-wing premise. So even a lot of the proponents of, you know, if you read people who are pretty jazzed about global value chains and, you know, business literature and economic geography, things like that, um, will be, will talk about this ungovernability and like the sort of best case scenario is they'll be like, oh, they're now like co-equal you know, negotiators. So yeah, Apple or, you know, Samsung, or I'm just using tech companies. I don't know if tech companies on the brain, um, you know, our, our Amazon, I've written about Amazon before, uh, right. Is sort of like a co-equal sort of power with uh, state power. Uh, and there's a long, 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 long literature about how um, concentrated wealth, how capital uh, uh, more broadly speaking um, sort of, what what are the mechanisms by which it uh, influences state power? And that's it's just very, very, very complicated. Uh, but I do think what we have now with, uh, and I think uh, more people, both in terms of climate analysis, but also, and again, in the left more broadly, must pay attention to is that this configuration of capital, this uh, in global value chains and whatnot, is totally different than say, again, mid 19th century, you know, industrial capitalism, not totally different. That's unfair. That's completely inaccurate, uh, but is different enough that we have to rethink uh, how politics and, and states are working. So I would, in fact, uh, agree and underline with the sort of premise of your question, which is right. Uh, and in some ways, currently, uh, a lot of these value chains are, in fact, able, you know, the, the multinational corporations that govern these value chains are able to avoid any meaningful oversight or control, do drive tremendous amount of, 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 of crises. Um, and as I talk about, you know, from the get go in, in the piece, um, it, you know, it often it uh, again, this is like an old prejudice from uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I'll use the word Eurocentric, an old Eurocentric prejudice that, right, like everything will, including like left-wing uh, struggle, will always model some version of how Europe progresses. And um, one of the cases that uh, is sort of the underlying, the simmering case underneath here is actually uh, more and more of the world uh, looks like the neo-colonial uh, situation as as people like Nkrumah and others discussed. Um, uh, and as sort of Fanon uh, sort of did, uh, theorized po uh, politically and psychologically. Um, and that sort of points to me, uh, one of the principal ways forward for, uh, for climate uh, political action, for a you know, political theory of, of climate, um, as we sort of deal with capital as it actually exists uh, today. You right. Oh, I'll, oh no, sorry. No, I'll no, add, oh, yeah. I'll add one thing. Uh, the case study that I sort of use there for this, right, is the way in which um, Glencore, which is a um, uh, uh, a very large multinational that is the principal, um, it owns the largest mines and largest share of mines in uh, the, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and how they outsource. Um, they they literally. Uh, are able to, you know, use uh, private military contractors, um, 
technically public security forces that are 75% privatized in, in the Congo, um, and so on and so forth, to basically, I mean, literally, if you get into it, I don't talk about this in the piece, but they literally get away with murder. Um, and it's not just that they can't face action in, say, Congolese courts, uh, but even when you might say, oh, a global power like Britain or a global power like the United States sort of brings them around, at best they get a slap on the wrist. Uh, they just keep the, uh, the structure of these things. Think about like Uber entering markets, even when they're not supposed to, this, that, and the other. You know, maybe a slap on the wrist at best. The speed and uh, structure of these companies and the way in which they work does allow them, in fact, to skirt all these restrictions. And the irony, after, after I wrote this piece, right, the, the subcontractor they use for their private military functions, G4S, uh, who also do, you know, migrant detention camps and prison camps and all kinds of lovely things all over the world, including uh, here in North America, um, uh, also, uh, also is currently guarding. They are the they are in fact the subcontractor private security co uh, company uh, guarding COP twenty six. Uh, as you know, we are reading more and more every day, uh, especially you know uh, you know global north elites, well the global wealthy elites, let's say, um, are pushing for what is clearly a, a scenario of climate apartheid. So you know multi multi. The same company, and this is a point I make in the piece, right? Um, the same contract, same company, the same personnel that we see on the ground in, say, the Congo um, in a subsidiary, right? So no one's responsible for anything. It's all arm's length arrangements. Um, are also in the U.S. running migrant camps, are also in the U.S. running prisons, local, state, and federal, if I recall correctly, are also in the U.K. running pr uh, prisons. They're apparently not very good at even, uh, even if, like I'm, you know, I'm a, basically an abolitionist, right? But like, like they're not even good on the standards of of prison. Um, but yet they get the contracts, uh, continue to get the contracts um, because you have to realize that. And I don't mean you, Chuck. I mean one has to realize um, that they're not there really to you know, do anything that even rhetorically these institutions are supposed to do. They're there to make sure that the interests of private property are protected. And you point out that in the U.S., G4S, the security firm, has been subcontracted by private firms as well as the military, oh, yeah. <laughs> Customs and Border Patrol, the Departments of State, Justice, Energy, Homeland Security, and the DEA, in addition to subcontracted work for prisons and police at state and local levels. Private clients include GlaxoSmithKline and Citicorp. G4S was recently acquired by the security conglomerate yeah. Allied Universal, which I've never heard of, but you point out, boasts the largest security force, 150,000 members in North America. It is the largest employer in North America and the seventh largest globally. Uh, Jay, can you and I start up a security firm that protects us from the environmental destruction caused by the corporations <laughs> that G4S serves? Is, is that legal or those security firms that protect us be called terrorist organizations? Uh, if we did so, uh, this is really funny. There's been quite a amount of controversy about people talking about ecoterrorism, I feel like, lately. Um, yeah, if you and I decided to get together and say, you know, I think we should, in fact, start a little bit of violent resistance, whether that be property destruction or whatnot. Uh, yes, uh, we would have probably be targeted by, uh, we would be labeled as, as terrorists and and and. I would definitely never see the light of day again, probably, if I actually did it. Um, I do, in fact, think that many, uh, I think people who think that there will be no violence uh, involved in climate politics are just 
A, completely, completely historically ill-informed about how even the least violent movements in history work. Like even the most like pristine case of like, labor, you know, of, of like labor struggle or of nonviolence of Satyagraha in India or um, nonviolence with MLK, right? Um, forget how much violence, how much property destruction and, and so on and so forth actually still occurred and how much and how much that was central to those movements. So on the one hand, yes, you have something like uh, Allied Universal, uh, which yes, I didn't heard of either until I was doing uh, a deep dive into G4S. It's like, oh, they got acquired by an even bigger uh, security company. Um, and yes, uh, they, uh, yes, we, if we were to do what they are doing, uh, I talk about this in the previous piece you mentioned again, um, you know, that, that it is estimated that up to like a quarter in, in places like North America of labor is 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 now surveilling, guarding, or policing other labor, um, and that and when you look at a case like uh, G4S and Allied Universal, you can really see the numbers, and you're like, oh man. Um, so on on the one hand, you can actually see how much the picture is being scrambled again by the form, the function, the machinery, the structure of contemporary capitalism. And on the other hand, um, how, yes, it, we would be labeled terrorists. Many people uh, uh, run from this kind of language. Um, but in fact, there's almost no way violence will not be part of some kind of uh, what, I, what I generally call real sustainability or like uh, real climate mitigation and adaptation in the interests of the flourishing of the vast majority of people on the planet, uh, global north and global south. Um, yes, the, the, in fact, that is necessary. And yes, it will be policed uh, like crazy. Um, if you look just at the example, uh, so G4S is... Uh, policing COP26, as I mentioned before. Uh, and in fact, uh, I think Kate Aronoff and a few others uh, were uh, pulling things out of their dossier. Uh, they're one, what are, what's one of the things they're doing? Well, they're cataloging all the local Extinction Rebellion movements, right? Um, if you look at, um, I've talked about this actually in other articles that aren't uh, directly climate related, but if you look at, uh, for example, uh, emergency police legislation, emergency powers in places like France that then get turned to permanent security measures. Uh, they are nominally about this kind of like vague hand-waving thing about terrorism that I think no one even buys anymore. Um, and then quietly they're used to scoop up uh, especially a lot of, uh, of climate activists and other left-wing activists. One last question for you, Ajay. We've been speaking with Ajay Singh Chaudhry, who wrote the Baffler article, The Extractive Circuit, An Exhausted Planet at the End of Growth. One last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. It's an easy one, Ajay. What will it take for the public to finally recognize it's all capitalism's fault? <laughs> uh, you know what? I think... You know, this is like almost like the nub of another piece that I was hoping was, was going to come out now, but isn't because um, actually, I think more and more people get it. Um, I uh, even in the United States, denialism. So if, let's start from the easy and work to the heart. Right. So even in the United States, unquestionably, the world capital of denialism, denialism is really sort of, you know, taken a second seat. And uh 
I, I forget what the exact numbers are. It depends on your methodology and things like this, but it's like something like 60, 70%, including a majority of Republicans, self-identified Republicans um, are all like, yeah, climate change is totally real and it's pretty fucked. Um, so, all right, lowest barrier uh, crossed. Uh, then if you start looking at a lot of, even again, popular media discourses, discussions, a lot of people know, you know, they might not put it exactly in these terms, in the terms I do, uh, but that's fine. Everyone's got their own language, right? Like, but they know that, right, a lot of this is being driven by the bottom line. And it's really crystal clear for, I think, uh, for most people. Again, I don't know the exact survey numbers here. I don't have them at my fingertips, but I have them elsewhere. Um, you know, that what fossil fuel companies, for example, have been doing. I think some of the other downwind things are harder to understand. And that's what I try to achieve with this kind of writing and, and my climate work overall. Um, but I do actually think that many, many people, then if you go outside places so and, and unlikely places, right? Um, rural America, farmers, a lot of farmers really get uh, what's going on uh, uh, in terms of climate change, in terms of capital, in terms of debt, in terms of finance. Uh, that's crystal clear to a lot of people who I think are often sort of missing from this story. And it's really clear if you start talking about peasants in the global South and things like that. So we are talking about huge numbers of people who I do think, uh, in fact, do uh, see uh, and understand capital as a, as a principal part of the story. I think it's... Uh, you, it's actually in many ways sort of the reverse. It's like 8% of the population, which un, 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 globally or whatever, uh, which unfortunately dominates, you know, 98% of media um, that desperately pushes um, this, these sort of other cases like, oh, it's this, oh, it's that. Um, and, you know, it, it, this, this kinds of arguments, uh, you know, oh, we just need a techno fix. Uh, it's coming 10 years down the line. Well, 10 years is too late. Oh, we're going to ring the world with nuclear reactors. Well, all the, con the concerns about nuclear reactors aside, um, you know, it takes about 10 years to build them and all the carbon costs are up front. Uh, the extraction costs are up front. It's a disaster. Um, so you get these sort of techno things. You get all these sort of romantic things. Ah, we're all going to stop and, and roll back the clock. No, these things, are, uh, sometimes, they're, sometimes they're pushed at, at very elite levels. The population argument you made is very popular uh, in, in some media coverage. Uh, and it does leak into you know, scientific discourse. And it's, it's, it's very complicated and, and, and to go into. Um, but I do think, in fact, many, 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 many people are seeing these things in a sort of fragmented way. And part of the point about, for me, talking about, you know, I just sort of get to this in this piece, and it's really later work that I'm developing th this argument in. Um, part of getting to exhaustion and fatigue, bodily and mental, um, grief, uh, all these, uh, uh, I forget all the different things. Yeah, the sort of large, you know, affective range, this emotional experiences, these uh, um, direct experiences of social, ecological, economic, and political crisis. Um, this is something that I think a lot of people relate to, again, across these lines, that is expressed through uh, different languages, um, but gives the common sort of platform for a mass political response. Uh, Jay, it has been great to have you back on the show. You know that I'm going to be bugging you in the future to have you back on yet again. Oh, I'd be, when, love that. When is your book on the uh, your political history or theory for the Anthropocene? <laughs> when is that going to come out? 
Uh, I don't know yet. Uh, we're still sort of shopping that one around, but uh, it, it is it is largely done, and uh, there will be more articles coming out that are adapted from that work. Um, one in our own journal at the Brooklyn Institute of Social Research, it's called Late Light, uh, should be up. Uh, and we have, we're launching that journal this uh, sort of soft launching this year and then hard launching next year. One about the sort of time issue, some of which you brought up earlier, uh, will be out you know, relatively soon. Uh, and then others on this sort of question of, of exhaustion, on questions uh, that get into the built world and architecture and design, uh, all kinds of things should be coming out in you know 2022. So hopefully the book is then or soon after. Well, I hope to be talking to you soon. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, they can at materialist underscore Jew, which is unforgettable. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, Jay, take care. All right. Have a great afternoon. Yep. You too. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus. This is hell of that conversation with Ajay on capitalism uh, made you realize that, yes, this is hell. Show your support by subscribing to This Is Hell for our bonus Patreon podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell, which airs every Friday morning in his podcast shortly after at the same place. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is, in this house we believe what? Marianne M. says, the human race is the worst thing to ever happen in the history of the universe. <laughs> Jeffrey D. says that Godzilla won the Godzilla versus Kong match on points. <laughs> Braden S. says, if you can read the sign, you're too close. Pizza delivery accepted. In this house, we believe what? Krimsky K. says, we believe this is hell. Kim G. says that someone will eventually vacuum. Marco G. says, in science, kindness, and revenge. Joel G. says, daylight savings time is evil. And finally... In this house, we believe what? Bradley R. says, we have a house? We got an email at chuckatthisishell.com from Jim, who writes, Hi, great show. I enjoy listening to many of your interviews since 1998 when you had Gary Webb and Alexander Coburn on the show. You mentioned that someone suggested doing an interview about homelessness, which is a big and bigger issue in this city. There's currently the Streetwise newspaper, but it really has little to nothing to do with homelessness, which I've noticed before, though you do see some still selling the paper. The paper's content is devoid of the issue, as it is mainly a feel-good, rich charity glossy about fun events in the city, which is true and sad, because I always like buying Streetwise, because I like giving those people money, like giving the homeless money, and I often just tell them to keep the money and hold on to the Streetwise. So he, uh, Jim writes, there's a new website streetsense.substack.com It focuses on the homeless situation in Chicago and other parts of the world If you read some of the articles you will see that they are very insightful and interesting about the problem written by uh, insiders The editor to be a possible guest on your show is Thomas Hansen, PhD who edits the site and has worked in higher education but was a victim of horrible student loans and the bad economy He knows the problem of homelessness in the city very well and writes a lot about it on his site He may be someone to check out should you be interested in featuring this topic on your program Thanks, Jim First, Jim, thanks for listening since 1998. We truly appreciate it. Second, not all the writing at streetsense.substack.com is behind a paywall with several articles available for free. And finally, one of those articles is by Jim, who suggested streetsense.substack.com. Jim's post shared by Thomas Hansen is titled Homelessness, Ugliness, Heats Up. About an ugly scene Jim saw while handing out anti-war flyers near the Campbell or Kimball stop on the end of at the end of the red or 
brown line. So check out streetsense.substack.com as we will be doing or send us your suggestions on guests to discuss homelessness because this is a topic that we have sorely neglected. We also got a guest suggestion from Daniel who writes, hey, I've emailed you so many times that I've run out of ideas for compliments. So just good job. I left you an iTunes review to that effect. I've never gone to our iTunes page. Maybe I should check that out. Guest suggestion, Ashley Jackson, author of the recent book, Negotiating Survival, Civilian Insurgent Relations in Afghanistan. I don't know anything about her other than from watching a YouTube video where she discusses it. It was published right before the recent U.S.-NATO withdrawal. Well, Daniel, here's what I found out about Ashley Jackson's book. According to her publisher, Dr. Ashley Jackson is co-director of the Center for the Study of Armed Groups at the Overseas Development Institute. And she is, uh, the book is based on over 400 interviews with Taliban and civilians. Dr. Jackson's new book, Negotiating Survival, tells the story of how civilians have not only bargained with the Taliban for their survival, but also ultimately influenced the course of the war in Afghanistan. Challenging prevailing beliefs about civilians in wartime, Negotiating Survival presents a new model for understanding how civilian agency can shape the conduct of insurgencies. It also provides timely insights into Taliban strategy and objectives. While uh, Afghanistan's future is deeply unpredictable, there is one certainty. It is as critical as ever to understand the Taliban and how civilians survive their rule. Daniel, this book sounds absolutely fascinating. The understanding I always get from the establishment news media about the Taliban is there is no negotiating with them and that they are nothing but ruthless killers who will murder anyone who bats an eye at them. There has to be more to the Taliban than that. So not that we want to rationalize or legitimize their violence, but I'd like to see them more than just as cartoonish villains. We got another guest suggestion, this one from Ted, who contacted us on, via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishell. Sorry, Todd. Todd says, uh, have, hey, hey now, have y'all interviewed Dr. Kate Crawford about her book, The Atlas of AI, Power, Politics, and the Planetary Costs? of artificial intelligence no we have not but it sounds absolutely fascinating because the book is described as what happens when artificial intelligence saturates political life and depletes the planet how is ai shaping our understanding of ourselves and our societies in this book kate crawford reveals how the planetary network is fueling a shift toward undemocratic governance and increased inequality. Drawing on more than a decade of research, award-winning science and technology, Crawford reveals how AI is a technology of extraction from the energy and minerals needed to build and sustain its infrastructure to the exploited workers behind automated services to the data AI collects from us. Thanks, Todd. There is This is yet another topic that we've been wanting to cover, so we appreciate the tip. Too often, we simply accept the next new fancy technology without considering the potential consequences such adaptation may cause. Finally, Andy sent an email, not with a guest or topic suggestion, but a music suggestion. And if you hate Ronald Reagan, you will love Andy's music recommendation. Andy writes, hey, Chuck, turns out that John Hinckley, yes, that John Hinckley, is releasing music on various music sites and is looking to release an album on vinyl, too. Very classy of Mr. Hinckley. It's pretty good. 
his YouTube channel works the best for me, but apparently there are other places to listen to his studio reco- recording. Oh, also, here's his Twitter handle if you're interested, at JohnHinkley20. There's 19 other John Hinkleys on Twitter. Apparently he has a Spotify too, but when I try to play it, it just asks me to sign in and to hell with that garbage. Too bad he wasn't a better shot. Andy. Andy's apparently not a big fan of uh, the late uh, President Reagan. But here's some John Hinckley lyrics that he posted on Twitter. These are lyrics to his own song titled, Roses and Lace. May peace be with you every day in every kind of way. May good things come into your life to have a blessed day. May all your dreams be wonderful each and every night. And may you walk in righteousness and do what's right. Considering John Hinckley's history of righteousness and doing what's right, or at least what he thinks is right, it's hard not to forget while listening to John Hinckley's music that the guy who is singing about Ronald Reagan, or, you know, shot Ronald Reagan while he was president. Even his cover of Elvis's Don't Be Cruel seems to be dripping with irony and innuendo. Listeners, please send your guests and topic suggestions or whatever you want to send via email to us to chuck at thisishell.com and we'll likely share your thoughts on air. Again, thanks to today's guest, Ajay Singh Chowdhury, who wrote the Baffler article, The Extractive Circuit, An Exhausted Planet at the End of Growth. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.